Hello, and welcome to another episode of our podcast recorded at the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Adairsville. I'm Jared, and we're delighted you're listening. But if you're ever in the area, we'd be even more excited if you dropped in to say hi and enjoyed some good Southern food with us. This morning, we are going to look at the story of Rahab and the fall of Jericho. This is one of the exciting stories in the Bible, and there are many. Before we start this story, I want you to think about someone. And think about someone in your life that you know, that you care about, that doesn't currently have a relationship with Jesus. And you wish they did, because you know it would bring more peace into their life, things would make more sense in the world, but for some reason, they don't have that experience that you have yet. And with that person in mind, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, there is someone each of us deeply care for that may be caught up in the world, they may think they have nothing to do or no need of religion and spirituality, Christianity and Adventism. Lord, we want to pray for that person right now, that you will bless them this day and show us how we can be a friend in their life to lead them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And it is with that, caring for someone you love, that we begin our story. Joshua has been mourning the loss of his best friend. Forty years they worked together. They walked together. They were friends. But Moses, four weeks ago, the great leader of Israel has died. And now Joshua knows he has been called to be the leader of Israel. He knows that they have been called to go into the promised land after all of these years. And he thinks back 40 years earlier. Turn with me, Numbers 13. He turns back the clock in his mind. He knows this is the time. We are crossing the Jordan River and we are going into the promised land that God has promised us. We've been in this world too long and it's time to go to the promised land. See, 40 years earlier, Moses had said, I need 12 spies to do a secret ops mission in that land over the river. 40 years ago. And one of those spies was Joshua. So as he's thinking back to the land they're now going to, in verse 18, Moses had said, See what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. Whether the land is rich or poor. Whether there are forests there or not, 
Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Verse 23, Then they came to the valley of Eshol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. That is a huge cluster of grapes. I remember as a kid being told the grapes were like the size of grapefruit. And two men carrying a bunch of grapes. And they also brought some of the pomegranates, maybe the pomegranates, and the figs, right? And they, they're bringing these back. Verse 27, they get back to the congregation. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. <laughs> Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. The giants live there. So Joshua is thinking about all that he saw because his report was he and his friend Caleb of all the 12 spies were the only two who said, and we can take the land. But everyone else was afraid. Oh, there's giants. You know, everybody's usually afraid of giants. But Joshua knows now. God told us we'd stay in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day we spied out the land. And that time period is over. And we are going into the promised land. He remembered the strong cities, the giants. And so he wondered, is that still the case? A few miles beyond the Jordan River, just opposite of where the Israelites were encamped, was the large and strongly fortified city of Jericho. This city was the key to the whole country. So Joshua sends two young men as spies to visit this city, learn about the population, its resources, and the strength of its fortifications. In Deuteronomy 9.1, talking about earlier, it had said the cities in this land with, had walls fenced up to heaven. Sometimes when you're discouraged, you exaggerate. So this might have been one of those times of a report from the spies. They're fenced all the way up to heaven. You can't get in these places. We're told the inhabitants of the city of Jericho, they were terrified and suspicious of what Israel was about to do. Perhaps their hearts were failing them for the fear of the expectations that were coming on their earth. And they're constantly on alert. And these two spies realized they were in great danger. You see, Jericho was a city devoted to the most extravagant idolatry. They worshipped the demon goddess of the moon, Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of fertility, sexuality, and war. And they worshipped her often by speaking through their dead loved ones. The inhabitants of this city were very rich. Gold and silver were in abundance. 
And like the antediluvians, those who lived before the flood, the citizens of Jericho worshipped the creature instead of the creator. They were corrupt, blasphemous. They insulted and provoked the God of heaven, and perhaps there was no city since Sodom so evil. And in Joshua chapter 2, we pick up our story. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men to spy secretly. And he tells them, go view the land, especially Jericho. He knew if they could take Jericho, they could take the whole land. So he's doing what any good leader would do. He's scouring the situation and seeing what they're up against. And somehow, in this first verse... These two spies get into the city of Jericho. And this is where the Bible just doesn't hide any of the nitty-gritty details. They find their way to the home of what we soon learn is the most famous prostitute in the city. Of all the places spies might end up, on their spy mission, they find their way into the home, it says, of the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Very perplexing. And it was told the king of Jericho. So this is a city where its citizens are also surveilled at every moment of the day. Perhaps you can relate. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So their spies knew what the other spies of Israel were doing. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. He must have known Rahab very well. Saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. And then verse 6, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Interesting. Uh, I was looking, and it, it says, some Jewish scholars believe Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women the earth has ever known. As a child, she had heard of what God had done in Egypt. And she had never forgotten this. The king, we find here, is very familiar with her business. How does she know all the affairs of the nations around her? Perhaps because of the affairs taking place in Jericho. 
because she knows all about what's going on. In Hebrews 11.31, the apostle tells us, By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. If you've ever heard this story and wondered, but she's lying. Kids, if you've ever heard from your parents, don't lie. And then you hear this story and you think, is God blessing this woman who's lying? Anybody ever wondered that in this story? I have with three hands. I've always wondered that. Here's some commentary on that idea. This case has been a cause of stumbling to some who have not given careful thought to it. Okay, guilty. It is well known that Rahab lied to the men sent by the king of Jericho to seize the spies. And they imagine, that's we, me, that in saving her, God placed a premium on lying. And that it is right and okay sometimes to lie. So you read the story, you think, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. maybe God blesses lying sometimes. Then it goes on. Neither is true. Rahab was saved not because of her lie, but because of her faith. There's some details here. She, in common with all the people of Jericho, everyone had heard the stories of how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. How he had led the Israelites. But she alone, of all the inhabitants of Jericho, believed that the hand of the Lord was in the matter. And that God had given the land of Canaan to the Israelites. She's alone in this belief. She had simple faith, but was totally ignorant of God's law. That's key. She did not know lying was a sin. In the code of heathen morality, lying was accounted a virtue. And she knew nothing better. But her faith made it possible for her to be saved and brought her into a place where she could learn righteousness, how to do right, how to live right. As a natural consequence, her faith in God would increase when she learned more of him. In her case, we have a clear instance of the revelation of the righteousness of God. When God can go into someone's life and say, I, I recognize where you're at now, but that's not where I'm going to leave you. And so she lied because she thought, well, this is an honorable thing. I don't know any better. So that's where we have to be careful when we judge people that may not be on the path, the place in the path where we're at. And the story continues in verse 8. Now before they lay down, these are the two spies, Rahab comes up onto the roof. And she says to them, now this, this is... This is a pivotal moment because she's been brewing on Israel and Israel's God for nearly 40 years. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Isn't it amazing? These two spies are in the house of a prostitute and she comes up on the roof because she's done them a favor. That's already great. 
And then she tells them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Or we might say, they're terrified. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the kings of the Amorites. Verse 11, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she's preaching a little sermon to them. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father and my mother and my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the spies answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, we will deal kindly and truly with you. So what does she do? She lets them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So she's a shrewd woman. She understands strategy. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household to your home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. It's very specific. We will be guiltless, and whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she says, Rahab responds, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And then she bound the scarlet cord in the window. She's ready. She knows this is going down literally soon. Verse 22, they departed, went to the mountains, stayed there three days. Verse 23, so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, crossed over the Jordan. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had taken place. And then they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are terrified. They are terrified. So Joshua feels this is what he was looking for. God has given us the land. He believed it 40 years ago. He believes it now. This is our moment. So they begin to prepare to cross the Jordan River. This is the time of the rains. The Jordan had swelled. So it's not just a little creek. 
Perhaps it's like what's around here right now, overflowing rivers. And then we're told this, as they crossed the Jordan, four heavenly angels always had accompanied the Ark of the Covenant in all its journeyings to guard it from all danger, to fulfill any mission required of them in connection with the Ark. Four angels, this is their job in the universe. Guard the Ark. Jesus, the Son of God, was followed by heavenly angels into the riverbed. So whenever we think, where is God in a situation? He is there, but we may not recognize it. Especially in the Old Testament. We read a lot of things. We wonder, where's Jesus? Oh, Jesus is there throughout, and we're going to see more of that in this story. Jesus is followed by the heavenly angels into the Jordan, and the waters were cut off before his presence. Christ and angels stood by the ark, and the priests in the center of the riverbed until all Israel had passed over Jordan. Think of that scene. This was as momentous as the Red Sea crossing. Now they're in the land of promise. We're told that part of the world at this time was the tropics. Think of what a difference has taken place in the Middle East if at one time it was known as the tropics. That's very interesting. How it went from that to this is another discussion we should have. So they're in the land of promise, and they begin to eat of the fruit of the land. Until we're told soon after they get there, they begin to eat. The manna finally stops falling. But they realize we have to get through Jericho. Joshua likely is looking back at his life. And we learn something fascinating that of the one to two to some scholars think three million people that left Egypt, every man over 20 had died except two, Joshua and Caleb. And he realizes, what could have been if we had marched right in 40 years ago? But he's prepared, and they're ready to attack Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 5, he's praying. He's seeking the wisdom of the Lord. Lord, how are we going to do this? These people are people of war, We've been wandering in the desert. In verse 13 it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua is a man of war, He sees what looks like a man of war with a sword drawn. This is a fair question to ask. Are you for me or against me? And I love the response. No. No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? We need to know who this is. 
Turn with me to Revelation 19. It is a commander of the army of the Lord. What's your first thought of who this could be? I think uh, this is an angel. Somebody's job in heaven is to run the armies. This is an angel. So Revelation 19, verse 10, we read a circumstance of an angel talking to John. And John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. No, 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 no. Get up. Then he says, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So here's an example. An angel, and we see this multiple times in the Bible. Angels refuse worship. Don't worship me. Get off your knees. We're equals here. So we go back to our story. This is not an angel. Because it does not refuse worship. Well, who is it? Well, it goes on. It says, verse 15, Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Who is this? Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Moses has been wandering in the wilderness. He sees something really strange. It's a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And he, he goes closer to it. And then he hears a voice, Moses, Moses. In verse 5, this voice from the bush says, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. That's the same language, right? Verse 6, moreover he said, So this, the voice speaking out of the bush identifies himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is none other than Jesus himself. With a drawn sword as commander of the armies. That adds some new dynamic to the story. They're about to conquer the land. Perhaps for 40 years. Man, are, are we on God's good side or bad side? There's been people who've wondered. Joshua has known. But at this point, are you for us or against us? No. I'm the commander of the armies of heaven. He takes off his sandals. He bows down and he begins to worship. And then the details begin to come. The Lord said to Joshua, Joshua 6, verse 2, See, I've given you, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. And here's what you're going to do. And he begins to tell him the details. You're going to march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. All around the city once. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, horns, before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow trumpets. Then he's told, no one is to make a sound during this whole time. Only the sound of the trumpet. 
We, we read in, in books like Patriarchs and Prophets that the inhabitants of Jericho are watching this take place. And just think about some of the language we're seeing here. The rains had come. Israel, in Joshua 3 and 4 and 5, had consecrated themselves. Then the trumpets sound. Then the loud cry takes place. Then the city falls. And people come out of the city and are saved. The inhabitants in Jericho are watching this take place. They are ready. And they see the strangest thing happening. Why are all of these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions, marching around our city and it's completely quiet? You can't hear anything. And then they blow their trumpets. What are they doing? Do they think they can, this is, you know, some people would probably think this is obnoxious. We're insulted. Should we start firing the arrows? Others, no. Oceans part for these people. Just hold on. And the next day comes. Silence. Trumpets. For six days, silence, and then trumpets are blown. Six trumpets in the past. Here we go. Then on this seventh day, they blow the trumpets seven times. And then what happens? Before the destruction of the city, Rahab and her family, people of faith, were told, you're going to have to get out of the city. You have to leave this place. You have to come with us. Revelation 18 describes it as, come out of her, my people. God's people in there that have to come out before it's destroyed. We're told God's judgments had been awakened against Jericho. This city was the stronghold. Christ and his angels led Israel around the city. I had never seen that before. Think about that. Jesus and these four angels guarding the ark and all the men of war and the men who blew the trumpets and all of Israel As heaven and the unfallen worlds look on, this had to be a scene that got their attention. What is Jesus leading these people, and what are they about to do? Finally, the moment comes on that seventh day, seven trumpets have sounded. And we're told the captain of the Lord's host came himself from heaven. It's just describing this scene. To lead these armies in the attack on the city. Angels of God laid hold of the massive walls and brought them to the ground. The trumpets have sounded. This loud cry is going out and angels personally, are dismantling the city. 
God had said that the city of Jericho should be accursed and that all should perish except Rahab and her household. They should be saved because of the favor that Rahab showed the messengers of the Lord. And God saves Rahab and all her family before those walls were torn down and the city was lit on fire. Rahab marries Salma, and they have a son named Boaz. Rahab becomes the great-great-grandmother of a young boy named David. And God puts characters like this in this story to remind us, I don't care about your past life. That the Messiah and his lineage would have harlots in it. In your face, Satan. But there's some application of this story. Of Babylon, it is declared... Her sins have reached unto heaven, another city, a symbolic city, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's Revelation 18.5. She has filled up the measure of her guilt, and destruction is about to fall upon her. She's abused children too long. She's instigated one too many wars. She destroyed the family. She destroyed the environment. She destroyed the middle class. She confused the genders. She told men they were saved when they weren't. She told men they were lost when they were saved. She scared people with the fear of hellfire. She told us when we died, we went straight to heaven. She said God was selfish when no selfish being would lay down their life to save their enemies. And before the visitation of God's judgments, God still has a faithful people in Babylon that must be called out. That they partake not of her sins and receive not of her plagues. And that warning is given by us to those people we love. Come out of her, my people. This is a part of the message that constitutes the final warning to be given to the inhabitants of the earth. Friend, wife, husband, mom, dad, son, daughter, cousin, I love you. You've got to make a decision. Are there things that have not been made clear in this story that I can clarify for you? Is there something someone did to you that has made you hate God and everything he's about? Is it something I've done? As a husband, have I mistreated you and shown you that Jesus is not love? As a boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, have I abused something in our relationship 
that has made you say no thank you to religion? And if so, I'm sorry. I am sorry. I want to see you saved. And this idea, this last message, is please forgive me. Before Jesus returns, there has to be some apologies like the world has never seen. I let you down. I was your elder, your teacher, your preacher, your friend, and I let you down. And I'm sorry. But don't miss out on paradise because how I let you down. God is bigger than what I have done to hurt our relationship. That's the type of experience people are desperately wanting to hear. Some kids that you may have that aren't here or not in any church today, all they need to hear from you is, I'm sorry, I let you down. Malachi says that it's the Elijah message, the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Before God can do what he really wants to do in the world and really easily call people out. I know the world is shiny and full of glitter and money and fame. But there's something better. There's a heavenly mansion with your name on it. And the worst thing that could happen is I go there and you not because of something I did to hurt your walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story that regardless of circumstance and whatever things led Rahab down a path, Lord, we see she never gave up. And when the moment came, she said, I want to be saved. There's those of us, we know people that we have been a hindering, stumbling block in their path through life. Do something in us that is not natural, where we can apologize, heal relationships before it's too late. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more messages and food for your spiritual life, go to adairsvillesda.com.